Amen. You may be seated. Today, the section in the Nicene Creed that I would like to speak about is the one that says, I believe in one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And uh, connected with that, a reading from Colossians. You've got your Bible, it's in chapter 2, beginning in verse uh, 6, where it's printed there on page 12 in the bulletin. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. God, now we ask you for ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts as we hear this. In Jesus' good name, amen. I'm sure you all have noticed the very great difference between just hearing about a major event versus having that event kind of like reach out from wherever it has happened and touch you where you live. Or all of a sudden that thing, that big event, is having effects in your everyday life, like what's going on in the Middle East right now. It's weighty, and I know that, but it's not reaching out and touching me the way it's touching some people. You talk to some Israelis or Palestinians, and for them, they have family and friends who are just gone. And that thing way out there, thousands of miles away, has touched their life. It has reached out to where they actually live. But there's a difference between just hearing and being affected. And if that's true of events, it's also true of the things that we confess in the Nicene Creed. You know, we can hear about... God and the gospel and the goal of the gospel, that's pretty much what the creed has been about so far, yes? God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the gospel, what God the Son has come. He's on a mission. He's, he was sent by the Father to undo all the ruin of sin, to restore what sin has ruined. That's the gospel. And then, of course, the goal of the gospel is the gathering of God's worldwide people. God wants a huge worldwide people to be his own. And we can hear about those things, and we can feel that they're weighty. You know, if you really think about them, it's like, yeah, that's weighty stuff. But it can also feel kind of out there. And these last two clauses of the Nicene Creed, what they do is they, just, they reach out now and they touch us where we live. Because what these last two clauses of the Creed say is that this triune God that we, we've confessed, he has laid hold of us. He has laid hold of our very bodies in baptism. And he's going to carry you and me all the way until he raises us from the dead. He just reaches out and grabs us. God has 
actually laid hold of your body in baptism, and he's going to carry you all the way until he raises you from the dead whenever that happens. And today we're going to talk about that first clause, about baptism. And I just want to try to help you guys by the end today. I really hope that God will help you and me to own, really own, two gifts that God gave us in our baptism. And those gifts are peace and purpose. Peace and purpose. And I want to start by just talking for a few minutes about baptismal peace. Peace. You guys have peace? Not a lot of peaceful people, it seems, when you kind of look around the world. And what is it that disturbs our human peace? Well, you know, to just kind of start where we live, the reality is we all have some problems, don't we? I could ask any one of you today, what are your, what's disturbing your peace? And you could give me a list of problems. And sometimes those problems seem fairly simple. You know, if my driveway, the asphalt in my driveway is kind of cracking and breaking up, this is a problem. And it's not like a huge big deal. I can probably fix that pretty simply. But if you start you know, adding up these problems, what you realize is we quickly end up with kind of getting down onto the surface to two much, two much deeper problems. And these problems, these deeper problems really haunt our lives. And they really complicate even the simplest problems like getting your driveway fixed. One deeper problem is we just have limited resources. Like a driveway maybe is no big deal, but if I have 25 of these things in my life, I start realizing I just don't have enough money for everything that I need. We have limited resources. Money is one. You know, how-to is another. You ever have this feeling throughout your life that just about the time you figure out how to do one thing, there's 12 other things come along you don't know how to do, and you're kind of like starting it all from scratch again? We just run out of the resource of how-to. And even if we have a lot of how-to, like I know how to do stuff, don't you ever find one of the worst things in life is realizing how little power you actually have? Any of you who have ever had a loved one who has a terminal illness, you just feel so helpless. You have no resources. You just wish you could wave a wand and make it go away. The reality is every single one of us right now is one or two steps away from some kind of bankruptcy of some resource in our life. That's one haunting problem, limited resources. The other is troubled relations. I mean, what if this dude who fixed my driveway in the process smashed a bunch of the siding on my house and he just doesn't care and he's not returning my calls? These kinds of things happen. They complicate things. We all understand. There's a way we should treat each other. And please, despite the stupidity that gets said in our postmodern world, we are not just making it up. It's not just what you say. I just have to do, I just have to treat people the way you say I should treat people. And it's not just what I say. You don't have to treat people a certain way just because I say so. We both understand. We're supposed to treat people a certain way. We're supposed to be a certain way toward each other. And we are accountable to something higher than your say-so and higher than my say-so. And yet the reality is we know we're accountable. You're accountable. I'm accountable. The guy fixing my driveway is accountable. We don't treat each other the way we know we're supposed to. Often we treat each other incredibly badly, in fact. And so at the core of our lives, there are these two like haunting realities. We need what we don't have. That's vulnerable. And we're not what we should be. Can I just say, it's almost like we were not made to be our own. (laughs) And if you really take that to heart, that we just need what we don't have, and we are not what we should be, almost like we were not made to be our own, if you really take that to heart and you think about that with some intelligence, it is going to bring you to the very deepest problem we human beings have. You can kind of get it intuitively, but it is made explicit in Scripture. The prophet Daniel once said to a very proud king, he said, Here is your problem, O king. The God 
in whose hand is your breath. There's the dependence. And the God whose are all your ways. There's the accountability. You have not honored. That's the most basic problem. The God who holds your breath and could take it today. And the God who owns all of your ways and to whom you are accountable in all of your ways. You have not honored him. That's the deepest problem that disturbs our peace. John Webster describes it this way. He says, in creation, God bestows a particular kind of life, which is not the creature's product or possession. And a life which flourishes only as it is exercised in dedicated fellowship with the creator. That's the kind of life God gave us. Life that is only that can only flourish as we exercise it in fellowship with God who gave it to us. And then he says, to this gift and this condition, the creature will not consent. Will not consent. Spurning life from the creator and with the creator. The creature pursues a course of self-origination and self-government. And the promises of that course, the promises of aliveness, down that road prove illusory. They prove false, leaving the creature dead through trespasses. So there's this lie we've believed since Eden that we can kind of originate ourselves and cause ourselves to flourish and govern ourselves. And it promises that we'll be so alive and it ends up being an utter wreck, leaving us, as the Bible says, dead in trespasses. And that is the miserable condition. Problems, yes, but underneath all the problems, this problem with God, we've walked away from the God who gave us life. That miserable condition, what Paul here in our Colossians text, in verse 13, describes as being dead in your trespasses. That is the situation into which what we call the gospel speaks. And you guys know this very well. I'll, I'll let John Webster again kind of describe how the gospel, the good news, speaks into this state of being dead. This is so beautiful. He says, the creator's determination to love and bless the creature. It's not overturned by our treachery and our repudiation of the divine gift of life. Isn't that beautiful? Just let, let that sink in. The cre creator, God's determination to love and bless us, it is not overturned by our treachery and our repudiation of his gift of life. God is rich in mercy and out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. At the Father's behest, that God the Son takes to himself the creature's wasted nature and bears, carries, and suffers its mortal corruption. In him, death runs its full course. His death is the death of death, the termination of death's regime. Overcoming death, he manifests himself to be limitlessly alive. And so the undefeated divine giver of life. That's the gospel. Jesus took our death. He exhausted that death. He, 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 he was buried under the power of that death, and then he broke its power. That's the gospel. But here, very quickly, and this gets more to the specific subject today of baptism, you very quickly, as you're thinking about that gospel, here's the Son of God. He comes and conquers death. He brings life. As soon as you start thinking about that, you realize there's something else here that we're going to have to address. So Christ gives life to dead sinners. That's the gospel. That's the good news. People that have run away from God and they are, they, are, they are just running toward death and the Son of God breaks the power of death and brings them back to life. All that is wonderful good news. 
But here is the question that you really have to wrestle with if you know that good news. How do you know it's yours? How do you know that life that Christ gives to sinners is for you? How do you know it's in you that Christ has given you that life that he gives to dead sinners? How do you know that God has made you alive with Christ? John Calvin in his Institutes actually wrote a very, very powerful sentence among many. He said, as long as Christ remains outside of us and we're separated from him, all that he's suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and is of no value for us. See, there's the thing. It's one thing to say the good news is a great savior who saves sinners from death. Yes, that is good news. That's not all the good news we need, though. Because as long as you're not connected to him, as long as you don't belong to him, as long as you're not joined to him so that his life is given to you, that great good news is just kind of out there. A great savior that you don't know if he's your savior. A great Lord, you don't know if he's yours. Because you're, what connects you to Jesus? What is the connection between you and this great saving son of God? Well, there's a wonderful answer to that, but it actually doesn't always help. It's a true answer, but it doesn't necessarily help us. And the true answer is, what does unite you to Jesus? So that the life that he gives, you can say, I have life. What is it that unites you to him? Somebody tell me. Faith, right? And that's biblical. If you believe in the Son of God, the life that he has won for sinners is yours. And there's more we could say about that, because it isn't just faith that originates with us. We could say, biblically, that that faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It is a, something the Holy Spirit works in us, that we who otherwise would not turn toward God and trust him and throw ourselves on his mercy. We'd be running the other direction. The Holy Spirit enables us to receive and rest and believe in what Jesus has done. Okay, but that's, that's all fine, but there's, there's still a problem. Because what if, as I think about, okay, it's, it's faith that unites me to Jesus, and it's the Spirit who works faith in me. Here's the problem. What if I have real doubts about my faith? I'm not so sure my faith is authentic. I'm not so sure my faith is enough. Is it the right kind of faith? Am I just assenting to things I've heard, or do I really believe this? And then I've got an even stronger question that's very, very hard to answer. How do I know if I've experienced the Holy Spirit's work? You know, I'm told the Holy Spirit, you know, gives people this thing we call new birth, where he just puts spiritual life in you. How do I know I've experienced that? And I kind of dig around in my heart and my life. Some days I see, wow, it looks like some good stuff going on in me. Other days I look at my heart and life, I'm like, good grief. <laughs> I think I'm behaving worse than people who don't know Jesus some days. What if you doubt your faith? What if you aren't sure you've experienced the Spirit's work? So to find solid footing that never shakes, to find confidence that Jesus and all of his benefits, they are mine. What we need, brothers and sisters, is a sure word from the Lord, and God speaks it. He does not just speak that word we need in what we call the gospel that is addressed to all people everywhere. Right now, the good news goes forth to the ends of the earth, and that good news is Christ for sinners. And that is a word from the Lord. But God has also spoken personally and tangibly to each of us individually in the waters of baptism. Because the gospel is Christ for sinners, baptism is that Christ for you. 
that Christ for you. Baptism is not magic water. You can throw water on people all day long. That's not going to do anything. Baptism, as Paul describes it in Ephesians, is water with the word. Amen? It's water with the word. Water that conveys the good news for you. John Calvin describes it as an outward sign, water, by which the Lord seals on our consciences. He, he like marks a pledge on our consciences the promises of his good will toward us in order to sustain the weakness of our faith. So Ben Miller has days when he's just not sure his faith is going to cut it. And God has sealed on my conscience in the waters of baptism the promises that God has good will toward me. That's another level of confidence and assurance. And I'd like you to notice in the Colossians text we read how strongly Paul describes the transition that occurs as this word washes over our bodies. You will notice he says in this Colossians text that this marks a definitive end. A definitive end. Jeffrey Hemmer describes baptism this way. He says, in the otherwise placid waters of baptism, you know, like, it's not like we have, you know, tidal waves in the baptismal pool when we baptize. In the otherwise placid waters of baptism, the rebel against God, that sorry excuse for a man, comes to a violent end. Because Paul says here in verse 12 that when you are joined to Christ in baptism, look at the text, I don't want you to think I'm making this up. Having been buried with him in baptism, notice what he says in verse 11, having been buried with Jesus in baptism, you experienced an unbloody circumcision. I don't know if you all have ever watched a circumcision. It is a violent thing. I'm tempted to describe it for you. You were circumcised with, an, with, with a circumcision that was not by human hands, having been buried with Christ in baptism. How does that work? It works this way. You were circumcised with this unbloody circumcision by the putting off of the flesh by Christ's circumcision. So what he's saying here is this. Christ was cut off. I mean, what, 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 bapti- what, what circumcision pictured in kind of a small bloody way, I mean, for Christ, it was just blood all the way down. A bloodletting of his life. His blood was spilled out. He was cut off on the cross for our sin. And Paul says that through Christ's being circumcised, being cut off unto death, your old flesh. What is flesh in the Bible? It's not the body. It's human existence that dies because it's cursed. That old life where you were under God's curse and you were, you, you, you were susceptible to death, God cut that off forever by the circumcision of Christ. So Christ took your sin, died for it, and when you are joined to him in the waters of baptism, that whole thing just goes away. There is no more debt to God's justice at all. (laughs) You have received baptism for the forgiveness of your sins. I love the way John Webster describes this. He says, baptism makes the Christian's unregenerate past. The past where you are not regenerated, you are not alive. Baptism makes that unregenerate past into finished business. All sins are remitted. 
All pollution is cleansed. All obligations to render satisfaction for past wrongdoing, they're discharged. Brothers and sisters, that's the... That's good news for me. All of my sins are remitted. All of my pollution is cleansed. Every obligation I might have to satisfy for past wrongdoing, it is finished business. That is what baptism proclaims. You are joined to Christ. Christ is yours. God has spoken that to you in baptism. That means you, something violently ended in your baptism. That old self. Because if Christ is yours, Christ was cut off. So your old life is cut off. No more debt to God's justice. And thus, as Paul says in verse 15, because in verse 14, your record of debt was canceled because God nailed it to the cross. That also means in verse 15 that there's no more slavery to the powers. Paul calls them rulers and authorities here. They could be heavenly powers. They could be earthly powers. Any power at all in heaven or earth that wants to destroy you has been disarmed. Because if God loves you and God is for you, it doesn't matter what power stands against you. There is no more debt to God's justice. There is no more slavery to powers that can destroy. This is the definitive end that is marked in baptism. And of course, then baptism obviously must also mark a definitive beginning. Because Paul says you weren't just buried with Christ in baptism. He says in verse 12, you were raised with Christ. In verse 13, he describes it this way. You were made alive together with Christ. So if God in baptism says Christ is for you, doubt no more, that means join to Christ, you're alive with Christ. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that baptism is the visible sign and pledge of what it calls regeneration. You ever had a withered limb that regenerated? It suddenly became alive and full of life again? Well, baptism is a visible sign to you. Like, look at it. Look at the water. You can see it. This is a seal, a pledge from God of your regeneration. That's what our confession says. It is a a word from God that you should believe that you are alive with Christ in the life that he now enjoys with the Father because he's been raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ is not going to die anymore. He is enjoying such a good life with God the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit after his resurrection. And baptism says you're alive with him. You're with him in that life. Baptism pledges to you your status As God's child, you are named with his name. The name of the triune God has been marked on your body. You have as much right to call God Father as Jesus has a right to call him Father. That's what baptism says to you. It pledges the spirit. Not just, doesn't just give us, doesn't just pledge this status that we have as children of God. It pledges the spirit of the eternal son of God himself. That spirit that Paul says pours the Father's love into our hearts and actually cries out within us, Abba, Father. Baptism pledges our status. It pledges the Spirit who will work in us to enable us to receive and live as children of God. And thirdly, it enrolls us in the society of God's royal children. If God is my God, then his people are my people. A new status, a new spirit, a new society. And this, brothers and sisters, is the basis for peace. It is the basis, as Joseph Ratzinger puts it, for a trustful placing of myself on the ground that upholds me. 
That is such a beautiful description of faith. Faith is a trustful placing of my feet down on the ground that upholds me. Here I stand. God has spoken. He cannot lie. I am never an orphan. I am never an outcast. I am never rejected. I am never abandoned. I am never powerless. I'm never alone because God. That's baptismal peace. Need I say, and I'll be much briefer, that brings with it baptismal purpose. Because by washing our bodies and marking us physically with God's name and God's promise, baptism announces that Christ has not just cleansed our sinfulness, he has claimed our skinfulness. I think it was Ephraim Radner who coined that great word. Baptism says to you, God has not only cleansed your sinfulness, he has claimed your skinfulness. God has brought everything about Ben Miller. He's brought everything about you. All of your embodied particularities. He's brought your body. He's brought your soul. He's brought your season of life. He's brought the circumstances where your body is placed. He's brought the relations that you have in in your embodied life in this world. He's brought the opportunities of your life. He's brought the resources of your life. He's just brought all of you, all of your sinfulness, all of the particularities of who you are into the school now of royal sonship. You're now in the school of royal sonship because, brothers and sisters, as much as it just can feel so out there, this is what baptism constantly speaks to us, your father and my father, he is the high king of all things in heaven and earth. And, you know, C.S. Lewis said, Aslan is on the move. You remember that line from from, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Aslan is on the move. I'm telling you, our father, the high king, is on the move in this world. He is bringing his kingdom to earth. The great thaw of Satan's kingdom was inaugurated in the resurrection of Jesus, and it is still going on right now as we sit here this afternoon. And we are called by our baptism, then, to present our bodies our skinfulness for fellowship and service with our Father King as he builds his kingdom. That is the purpose of my life, to be in friendship and service with the Father King. That is what all of my particularities now are for, my intellectual capacities, my, 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 my skills, my, my resources, my relationships, my opportunities, my very body is in that school to fellowship with my Father, and to serve him as he builds his kingdom. Paul says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. That's baptismal peace. Amen? Therefore, glorify God in your body. That's baptismal purpose. Peter is not Lucy, is not Edmund, is not Susan. You are a royal son of God, a royal daughter of God in your particular skinfulness. Present it to God for righteousness. What does that mean? It means sometimes just enjoying God. It means enjoying God through just rituals of prayerful listening. Sometimes I just need to shut it all off and just be still and listen, pray, hear the word. Sometimes it means enjoying God by studying his creation, savoring his creation, being attentive to what he's given to me, being thankful for what he's given to me. Sometimes just enjoy God. That, that's fellowship. Sometimes it's, it's actually obeying God. 
Sometimes it's obeying God. You know, God doesn't have a lot of rules. But every rule that God has given us, it goes very, very deep. And when you're a thoughtful son of God, a thoughtful daughter of God, you are inclining your heart as you hear God's rules. You're inclining your heart, not just to what he has commanded, but why. Do you know why you do that? Why you're thinking about why God has given his commandments? Because you don't want to just be a rule follower. You want to develop a taste for goodness. So I can obey with my whole heart. And sometimes you just have to do what God says because he said it, and eventually you'll understand why. But that's one way of fellowship and service. Obeying God. Enjoying God, obeying God. Sometimes this looks like representing God. In fact, it looks like this all the time. Bearing God's name is a mission. You have God's name. That means you are constantly reflecting him in the world, and you want to show God well. It means I'm into my life. What's my baptismal purpose? I'm representing God here and now, and I'm thinking about my words. Am I speaking in a way that represents him well? Thinking about my attitude, my manner. Does my vibe kind of show the goodness of the Lord? I'm looking to do good work in his name, stuff that contributes value, because that's how God works. Stuff that builds, because that's what God does. Stuff that beautifies, because that's what God does. I want to do good work to show the excellence of God, because I represent him, because I bear his name. Sometimes representing God just means standing as a resolute, God-oriented presence in this world when every cultural wind is blowing the other direction. Yeah, but I'm God's man. I have his name. I'm just going to stand and look toward him as all the, everyone's going the other direction. This is my baptismal purpose. And obviously, and then I'll be done with this, that also means that you've got to kill some things too. Baptismal purpose is not just fellowship and service. It also means you've got to kill some things. There are in our lives remnants that old flesh, and these get in the way of our fellowship with our Father King and our service to our Father King. One is distrust. You've got to kill distrust. Anything that makes you doubt God's love for you is poison. Even if God has got his spanking stick out and he has given you a whale of a spanking, Scripture tells you you should, be, you should be cheerful because God only does that to people he loves. You kill distrust. You kill disobedience. Like guys, you don't negotiate with sin. The lie of sin is it'll be worth it. It is never worth it. It's just never worth it to go against your father king. Just kill disobedience. And in our world, I think we also have to kill distraction. It might be good for us all just to sit for a minute and list things that we are regularly seeing and hearing or doing in our everyday lives where if you really stop and look at them, they are not contributing a single thing to loving God or loving other people in his name. And we should just stop. Just stop. Kill distraction. So brothers and sisters, for the rest of your journey in this world, because you're baptized, these are your birthrights. Baptismal peace and baptismal purpose. And I just want to encourage you all so much from your inmost heart, claim these things as gifts from the God who loves you more than you could ever possibly love you. But that's just for life in this world. There's another whole world for God's sons and daughters. And we'll get to that next week. Bless these things to our hearts, Lord. Give us your peace. Give us fierce purpose in this needy age. In Jesus we pray. Amen.